0: Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 49 of So Important, the interview podcast. I am pleased that you are with me for this very special episode. Our guest is retired Brigadier General Ty Sijuli, who has written an eye-opening book entitled Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. Brigadier General Sijuli is a Chamberlain Fellow at Hamilton College, And he is also someone that you may have seen or heard discussing his book on CNN, CBS This Morning, or elsewhere, and for good reason. Brigadier General Sid Julie has garnered national attention for this remarkable book, which is in part history, in part a highly personal account of one man's journey that challenged the fundamental assumptions and beliefs that had guided his life. And in part, a call to this nation to address, in a serious, sustained, and deep-seated way, the issue of race in this country. General Sajuli grew up in the South in great reverence of its traditions. With over three decades of active military service and two decades of teaching at West Point and now at Hamilton under his belt, General Sajuli has an unflagging determination to confront history head-on, however unpleasant. Brigadier General Sajuli was perhaps the only person who could write this book, and today we're going to talk about his journey and what message General Sajuli is seeking to teach us. So with that, let me turn to our guests. And sir, may I welcome you to the show? Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, absolutely. It's great to have you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump right in. Uh, Your book is remarkable, not only for the history, but for the recounting of your own personal journey. Can you tell us a little about your background and the circumstances that led you to write this book? Sure.
1: Well, I am a career military officer, but uh, I grew up in the South wanting to be a Virginia gentleman. I was born in Alexandria, Virginia, lived there until I was... uh, uh, like 13 to 14, and then moved to Georgia, where I went to high school at a segregation academy, and then went to Washington Lee University, where I was uh, where I went where I took an ROTC scholarship, and then spent almost all my adult life in the Army. But I grew up with these myths and lies of Lee and the lost cause of the Confederacy, the idea that they were honorable people. And as I was in West Point, I realized that these just weren't true. I, both as a historian, as an Army officer, as a scholar, but I also realized that I couldn't. Uh, convince people with just the facts. Turns out facts don't convince people. Uh, storytelling does. And there was this one incident where I, my uh, we were creating a new memorial room at West Point. I was chair of the memorialization committee. And we were going to put our, uh, uh, the 1,500 plus names of those who gave the last full measure of devotion to the nation, who died uh, serving the nation, uh, in our this new memorial room. And we'd lost over 100 graduates killed just since 9-11. And one thing caused a ruckus, and that is, should the names of Confederate uh, those who fought for the Confederacy, should they go up there? And and I said, no, uh, ardently, stridently, because they fought against their country. They uh, committed treason. They killed U.S. Army soldiers for the worst possible reason to create a slave republic. But I lost. Uh, they voted to put them in. So I went home to talk to my wife, uh, who is incapable of lying. And I told her about this. She said, well, Ty, were you honest? Did you tell people about your own story? And I said, well, no, of course not. I'm a historian. I tell other people's stories. I don't, I don't tell my own. And she said, "Well, if you're ever going to convince anybody of these, of the facts of the Civil War, of the facts of uh, Reconstruction and Jim Crow, of all these terrible things, you're going to have to be honest about yourself." And so that's what I. That's the reason that I wrote this book. I also went to Washington University, my alma mater, and gave a talk that was called Robert E. Lee and Me uh, and got a great reception. So I knew that if I'm honest about myself, I'm more likely to be able to convince
0: others about the facts of history. As you said, you grew up as a Southern gentleman. Uh, You believed in the traditions of the South. It was well before the incidents that you just described where you started to really question some of these on a very personal level. What was it that led you to start thinking that maybe you need to uh, reconsider some of the myths about Robert E. Lee? Well, I think there are a couple of things. The first is my identity
1: changed. I, w- did, I was a Virginia gentleman. Very, that's what I wanted to be. It's what I grew up wanting to be. And my identity changed to be an army officer. Uh, and that meant you know, I took that oath seriously and you know, support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I didn't realize that oath was written in 1862 as an anti-Confederate oath. That Certainly, the army officer is part of it. Uh, my wife changed me considerably because you know, she made me look at myself more honestly uh, and the third thing was, uh, as I was at West Point teaching, I mean I, I was teaching that the war was about slavery, but I but I could still hold this sort of uh, ability to look at at Lee that he wasn't quite as bad as as he as I believe now he truly was. And what really changed me though is I, I was walking uh, at West Point in front of our barracks, and our barracks are named for our highest, our highest honor at West Point. So I walked by MacArthur barracks, Washington barracks, Eisenhower barracks, Pershing barracks. Grant Barracks, and I got to Lee Barracks, and I went. Why is it something named after Lee? And and I, I just stopped and looked at that, and then finally I went running all over campus and found that there must be more than a dozen dozen things named after Lee. This was my historical question, which is why were there so many things named after Lee at West Point? And when I went into the archives, I found that in the 19th century, West Point graduates saw Lee as a traitor, and I had not thought of him in that way. That really. You know, made me look at it as they said that treason is treason. So then I went, why were all those things named after Lee? And when I when I went to the archives and found found out they were named the 1930s, the 1950s, and the early 70s. And what that made me realize, and then why were they done there? It was in reaction to integration. When they brought black cadets back West Point for the first time, when the army integrated in the 50s, when minority admissions started in the early 70s, that's when these things were named. And that torque me. It made me so angry that that's really. I mean, that, that led me not only to understand the difference, but to be an activist for change.
0: That really gets us to the substantive arguments that you lay out in your book. And as I read it, uh, there seemed to be two interrelated myths that you wanted to address. And one is the argument that the Civil War is about anything else but slavery. And it didn't seem like there was much of a gray area to you. It wasn't like slavery and maybe these other things. It seemed to be very clear slavery was the cause of uh, full stop. And then the second is what you just started to allude to now that there's this myth or th- this uh, assumption that Lee was a great general. And you simply take that on, which I can understand is probably what led to some of the sensitivities you had uh, doing this as an army. That Yeah. So the
1: first one uh, is, is about slavery, which is if you read the secession ordinances, the ordinance of secession from the from the Southern states, it's just clear. Mississippi, Texas, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, they all say that we're doing this for slavery. I mean, and, and, and they're very proud of it. They say, listen, this is about white supremacy uh, and, and we're not going to allow Lincoln to stop that. Remember, the southern states had they didn't just want to have slavery. The white citizens of the South, they wanted to expand it into Mexico, Latin America, Caribbean, California. They wanted to expand it. They had a a vision of a of a not, not quite world domination, but regional domination uh, for a slave republic. And then you read the cornerstone speech from uh, the sort of the intellect of the Confederacy, which is Alexander Stevens, the vice president who said that the cornerstone of our new nation is the fact that the white man is better than the black man and that servitude is his normal and natural condition. And then there's this great, small, very slender book by a friend of mine, Charles Dew, called The Apostles of Disunion. And he goes and looks at the secession conventions. And I mean, just clear as clear as day, as, a, as ringing a bell, that it's slavery, slavery, slavery. I mean, you can say any other thing, but it all comes right back to slavery. Anything else is just a veneer that if you scratch it, slavery is the foundation. So that's the first thing. Yes, it's only slavery. And remember, people after the war, slavery now is on the ash heap of history. They have to find another reason to have racial control, racial domination of white political power, so they come up with other reasons. But this is not true. The second part about about Lee is, you know, I I argue that Lee, first of all, yeah, he did do... he, he. did keep the war going longer. In the Seven Days Battle in 1862, he fought uh, so well so hard that it really ensured that the war would last longer and that in slavery, slavery would end. I mean, that's really the genesis of the Emancipation Proclamation is Lee's victory in the Seven Days Battle. But we've got to remember the other things that Lee did. So too often in my life, I let the smell of gunpowder seduce me. And by that, I mean, I looked at the X's and O's of military history. Oh, he did this at Chancellorsville, and and he did this at Antietam. No, let's look at this, let's look at what he did. First, he led an enslaving army, and by that I mean his entire logistics was enslaved people, and he tried to get more and more and more eight to ten thousand uh, farriers, uh, nurses, um, uh, servants, uh, engineers, all of these things, uh, uh, quartermasters were all enslaved people. When he went north for Antietam campaign and the Gettysburg campaign, he ca- his army captured free black people, brought them back south for reenslave. Second he spent over two, two years running the slave plantations, or as I like to call them, enslaved labor farms uh, at Arlington, uh, White House, and others. And And so he spent more time from 1857 to 1860 running those enslaved labor farms. And he, unlike his father-in-law, who he took them over from, he broke apart families. He ordered them whipped. He thoroughly believed in slavery and fought for slavery. And that is wrong. Plus, he chose treason. And by that, I mean there's only one crime in the Constitution, that is to Article 3, Section 3, which says treason against the United States is levying war against them. And nobody levied war harder, longer, better than Robert E. Lee. So I find him that he chose treason. And by the way, there were eight U.S. Army colonels from Virginia in 1861, seven remain with the United States. He didn't have to do this. So yeah, if there's one bumper sticker you can remember from this, it's treason for slavery. And that's what Lee did.
0: What kind of reaction have you gotten? Uh, how did the Army feel about what you were doing? And did you feel you needed to leave the Army, even though, even though you were a colonel and then a brigadier general, but you felt you needed to leave the Army in order to really express your views?
1: Yeah. In 2015, I did a video uh, that said the cause of the Civil War was slavery. And I'm mean, it's very clear, slavery, 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 just what, they, what I just outlined. Um, and it went viral. And it's had 30 million plus views, 34 million, something like that. But the army investigated me for political speech for saying the, the, the civil war was about slavery. And I got probably 20, 30 to 1 negative responses to include death threats uh, against me. And I couldn't, I couldn't write openly. And, and listen, when you're in uniform, you don't have the same First Amendment rights that others do. And uh, I, I really, I just couldn't do it openly. And, and I, it's hard to write a book in, uh, in the Army because every time you go to do a podcast like this, you have to get permission from the Army to allow you to do it. So it was very difficult for me to give my views. And many people in the Army didn't agree with me. So I, I, reti- so I did retire partially because um, I wanted to be able to write and speak as freely as I can, which now Hamilton College has given me all the support in the world to be able to do that. I did not have that support at West Point. So that, that is one reason. But it, but it has changed since then. The Army uh, now completely embraces, I think, my views. And I heard General Milley brief this to Congress. Lee was a traitor. The Confederates were traitors. They did this for slavery. So I think the Army has come really a long way in this five or six years since I did that video. And they are anxious to change the names of these posts. They are anxious to make sure that they represent, the, they have the most diverse uh, workforce in the country, and they want to make sure that they, they do that. So I'm very proud of how far the army has come in a very short time.
0: But you also noted that, that the ideas about Lee in some parts of the country have not gone away. Why do you think that there's still support for these kind of views, for, for the views that we were just talking about that you laid out a minute ago? And where do we go from here? Well, culture is
1: stronger than history. Culture is stronger than facts. And remember, we have white America, and particularly white Southerners, have grown up with not just Southerners, all white Americans have grown up with this idea that the Confederates were noble noble losers or heroes, and, and Lee was the greatest gentleman of all. But we've got to remember uh, that this was done to enforce white political power. There's a purpose behind it. So if you think about that, all these things together, that the war wasn't fought over slavery, not true, that Reconstruction, that period after 1865 to 1867, was terrible because Black people weren't ready for the vote, a lie: Two thousand black men did did serve in high high political office. That Grant was a drunk and a butcher. That uh, that that Robert E. Lee was the finest man who ever lived, and that Confederate monuments then are are here. That these all these things create a a, a system of white supremacy, uh, which its foundations are segregation laws after the Civil War, uh, white terror, lynching. Black disenfranchisement, Confederate monuments, all these create the pillars of a white supremacist society, and so to retain white political power. And that's why giving these things up and and talking about openly would mean that it could change the political power. That's why states like Alabama and Tennessee have have made laws to prevent anyone from tampering with Confederate monuments, even in majority Black cities. So yeah, this is dangerous. History is dangerous because it goes after our myths and our identities. And I go after those myths and identities hard, and sometimes the reaction can be ferocious.
0: In part, I would imagine that the reaction was ferocious because of the context that was going on in the country at the time when the book was published. There was a lot of upheaval at, at the time. Did you feel the timing was right for your book and did that play into your thinking about how you were going to present this book as you move forward
1: I finished writing it in 2019 in like November October November of 2019 so it was far it was before the murder of George Floyd and the and um, the protests against racial injustice so I did it far before so I, I was kind of worried that I'd missed the boat that you know that the book wasn't going to come out until you know well after everything had died down but of course the thing about it is, is race is the virus in the American dirt? It 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 infects everything and everybody. It's our eternal pandemic. It's never going away. So you know, in fact, it, the book did come out like a week or two weeks after the January sixth uh, insurrection, when you could see, um, you know, there's a Confederate flag in the Capitol. So uh, you know, I, I'm happy to talk about this, particularly using the voice I have as a white Southern middle aged guy who spent a career in the Army and teaching at West Point. So I do provide cognitive dissonance. To certain people that aren't that think of the, the army or the military as a conservative organization that that doesn't think this way. But in fact, you know, we serve the nation, we serve the United States of America. And one of the things I'm really happy that more and more people are seeing are seeing the Confederates as traitors for slavery. They fought for an evil purpose but they also fought and killed US army soldiers and by by putting by changing that and changing the language so you know I don't say the union army i say the united states army because it should link and i keep that mind you can you can see right behind me i've got the us flag because no one's going to, to challenge my patriotism i love the united states of america i hate People that killed U.S. Army soldiers to destroy the United States. So by putting it and changing a little bit of the way we we do it, I hope that people can look at the at that as something that is that is un-American, is bad for America, uh, and stop you know stop flying that evil Confederate flag that will always mean white supremacy. So yeah, and, and I, I always think if I'm not getting people to react to me, it means that I'm not talking clearly enough or forcefully enough. So every time that I get the trolls online, or they give me one star reviews on Amazon, I say, okay, good. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting my message across.
0: What would you like to see happen in this country? How can we bring about the kind of change that we need? If racism is never going to go away, how can we at least get to a better place?
1: I do think that the only way to uh, prevent a racist future is to first understand our racist past. So I'm a historian. So I think that, that understanding where we were and who we are and who we have been, it helps that greatly. That understanding that the reason why we retained racism, particularly after the Civil War, well, one, understanding how terrible slavery was. I mean, rape. Uh most most young white uh men or boys in the in the in the south during the enslaved era had their first sexual experience with an enslaved woman. Rape was ubiquitous, that they understand about breaking families apart, and then they understand the lynching of the of the of the Jim Crow era and how just deeply unfair this was that there is a reason why black families have one tenth the wealth that white families do. So if you if you understand your own history, you become more empathetic. The second thing I really like to speak more history is understand your own hometown's history and understand most towns have redlining, which means that they excluded Black people from, from living in, in anywhere but a certain area, that understand that Social Security excluded black, most Black people when it first came in, that the GI Bill excluded most Black people, that the VA um, loans and FHA loans excluded Black people, so that there are reasons for the way things are right now, and history can do that, and once you have that, you're more likely To be able to understand that we need policy changes, but you can't agree to policy changes until you understand why we are like we are, and that's history. So to me, it's a great time to be a historian, to be able to tell um, Americans about their past so that they become more empathetic about their future.
0: You've mentioned the historical aspect. One of the really remarkable things about your book from my reading of it was it wasn't just a history. It was really a personal story. This was a campaign for you, using your vernacular. This is something really important for you to write, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, it's scary, too. The first time I gave a talk, uh, being honest about my own past of growing up, uh, sort of an idolatry of Lee, it was really scary. But I also knew that that's the only way to change people's minds. So historians rarely use memoir. I use memoir because it was a more effective way for me to tell this story because every aspect of my life has been infected by racism and by the lost cause myth of the Confederacy. So it it was, it is a personal thing to me uh, because I grew up in a way that was it was a terrible. It's terrible, and so I want to make sure that I'm doing whatever I can, whatever small way that I can, to change that narrative and to change the way Americans think about their past. And if you change the way Americans think about their past, they will change their policy uh, and the way they think about their future. So yeah, so it's a deep. It, it is. It's my story. That's why I every every time I get a chance to talk about it, I do because I, you know if I can reach one more person. To understand their own past and our nation's past, I think they'll be a better citizen going forward and a better uh, better American.
0: Those are very inspiring words. They're great words to end on. If there's one last thought you want to make sure gets across, what would that be?
1: We Americans aren't made out of cotton candy. We can handle the past. Discomfort causes no lasting damage. I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable. And the idea that we could look at our past and be open and honest about it is fine. It's not going to kill us, but it will make us a better society. Remember, the only way to prevent a racist future is to first understand our racist past. How can we know where to go if we don't know where we've been?
0: Perfectly stated. And let me just say thank you very much for spending a little time with me. Uh, This was a a wonderful conversation. And I I can't wait to give people a chance to hear it. So thank you. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. Good to talk to you.